All right. Good evening, comrades. Uh, happy Victory Day. Today is May 9th, 2023. I want to thank you all for being here. Our class tonight is going to be related to Victory Day because it's currently the struggle that we're waging internationally right now, which is the struggle against Ukrainian fascism. This class is going to be a history of Ukrainian fascism. So it's going to be a great class. It's going to be very relevant. And that's why we chose Victory Day for the beginning song. And what we're going to be learning today is the history of fascist groups and individuals in Ukraine in the 20th century and the 21st, the establishment of Ukraine as a fascist state and the genocide in the Donbass, and Ukrainian fascism today and how it appears on the battlefield, uh, which actually that last part isn't going to be the focus of this class because we had already done that with the overview of the war on Ukraine, but it will be mentioned. First, we're going to go ahead and have a video from one of the comrades that did a kind of documentary of fascism in Ukraine for PSMLS and Midwestern Marks last year. The land that is now Ukraine was previously held under the Polish-Lithuanian Empire, the Ottoman Empire, the Austro-Hungarian Empire, and of course, the Russian Empire. Needless to say, this land and its people through time have seen much war and power struggles over it. Back in the 9th century, much of modern Ukrainian land was known as Kievan Rus, the land of Ruthenian people. Rus was a loose federation of Eastern Slavic tribes. Their descendants today are mostly Belarusians, Ukrainians, and Russians. Kievan Rus was founded by a leg of Novgorod, Novgorod being the oldest city today in Russia. But Kiev was the center of Kievan Rus, and it was held under the Rurik dynasty. Kievan Rus came to its death when the Mongols invaded Rus. In fact, Kiev was burned down twice by the Mongols. Later in the 15th century, Muscovites began reclaiming parts of former Kievan Rus, but mostly in the east, while in the western part of what is now western Belarus and western Ukraine, these parts were then engulfed by the Polish-Lithuanian Empire. A Ukrainian state emerged following the 1917 Russian Revolution, when the Bolsheviks declared that all the formerly held colonies of the Tsardom to be free to self-determination. Following this, there was much political struggle between various groups for power. Socialists, anarchists, tribal chiefs, and monarchists all competed for power in the short-lived Ukrainian People's Republic. The fighting resulted in a five-year-long civil war that ended in 1921, with the Ukrainian Bolsheviks winning and Ukraine becoming a founding state of the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics, the USSR. So we could take some questions or comments while people, or while we're waiting. Yeah, I guess this is just for now directed at uh, Comrade Angelo for, because uh, historically and all that. Um, can you clarify the three parts of the fighting in 1940s Ukraine between I guess the Nazis, the Russians, and then even Poland was in on it. Can you just explain the three sides if you know any more? Thank you. Yeah, I'll, I'll give us what I, little I know, and then Tamrit could, if he knows anything on the subject. Yeah, there was uh, those majority of the Ukrainians were victims of German fascism, and they supported the Ukrainian Soviet army against the occupation. There was a small number who actually went with the Germans. They welcomed the Germans with flowers and the western part of the Ukraine. And then uh, there was another group that were a nationalist. They threw their lot in with the Germans so that the Germans would give them their own state. Yeah. So 
The majority of the Ukrainian nationalists were in Western Ukraine, as you said, Galicia, Volhynia. Now, something important is those two regions belong to Poland between 1920 or 21, the Treaty of Riga, and between 1939, September, when Stalin moved west to the Kurson line, which at that point, Galicia and Volhynia became part of the USSR. So between that and the war was only two years. And uh, those regions were majority, like overwhelmingly, Bandera regions. Okay, so they hated the USSR. So they did everything they could to welcome the Nazis, to collaborate, to fight Soviet Red Army and fight partisans. Okay, comrade from Virginia, you have the floor. Yeah, just to clarify how uh, Poland got these majority Ukrainian lands. Um, during the First World War, um, the Russian Civil War occurred after the successful October Revolution, where the whites and the counter-revolutionaries fought back against the Bolshevik government. Um, initially, the October Revolution was relatively bloodless, but there were counter-revolutionaries and they started the Russian Civil War along with the intervention of foreign powers. Um, this resulted in a situation where the Russian Civil War, a, long, a good part of it, the critical years of it from 1917 to 1918 coincided with the First World War. The end of the First World War saw the birth of Poland as a state. Keep in mind, Poland hadn't been a state since pretty much the late 1700s, ever since the main carve-ups of Poland between the Russian Empire, Austro-Hungary, and at that time, Prussia. So Poland, while the Soviet Union and while Soviet Ukraine was unstable, invaded Belarus and they invaded Western Ukraine and they established rule over there. Um, the Polish government in the 1930s was a very reactionary government under Pilsudski. They adopted the foreign policy of uh, Prometheanism, meaning that they wanted to build in Eastern Europe an anti-Soviet coalition of Romania, the Baltics, and other countries that would go and fight against the Soviet Union and break up seconds. the Soviet Union's unity. In fact, Poland actually had close relations with Nazi Germany up until pretty much 1938. They even had a, various trade agreements and pacts with Nazi Germany. Um, I encourage everyone to read uh, Grover Fur's very excellent book, uh, Blood Lies. He goes over a lot of this history in depth. Thank you, comrade. We're going to hop back to the presentation now. Okay. So, you know, the American Revolution has founding fathers, right? Washington, Franklin, Jefferson. Well, Ukro-Nazism have their founding fathers. There are three names. We got Petli Jura, Bandera, and Roman Shukovich. So, now I'm going to read all this. In the history of Ukro-Nazism, three names come to the forefront and are intrinsically linked to its development. Simon Petliura, Stepan Bandera, and Roman Shukovich. In fact, it's not a coincidence. The portraits of these three were all over the Maidan color revolution that overthrew the legal government of Ukraine in 2014. So now we're gonna talk about Simon Petliura, the first founding father. Okay, so 
The February 1917 revolution in Petrograd put an end to 350 years of Tsarism in less than a week. With the collapse of Tsarism, a movement of national liberation instantly developed in Ukraine and autonomy within Russia was quickly proclaimed. There were two wings in this movement, the bourgeois nationalist wing and the proletarian internationalist wing represented by Ukrainian Bolsheviks who stood shoulder to shoulder with their Russian comrades. In the Ukrainian national liberation, the class struggle took center stage. After the October revolution, things came to a head. The bourgeois nationalist Ukrainians could not accept Soviet power that was in control of Russia and proclaimed its independence. A so-called Ukrainian People's Republic was created in Kiev, led by Simon Petliura a notorious anti-communist and anti-Semitic. The Ukrainian People's Republic adopted the blue-yellow flag and the trident, both symbols of the current Ukro-Nazi regime. Petliura's army murdered tens of thousands of Ukrainian Jews. Petliura's regime fought against both the Russian SSR and the Ukrainian SSR. In the summer of 1920, Petli Yura allied with Poland when it launched a war against Soviet Russia. Poland was able to conquer parts of Western Ukraine, namely Galicia, including Volf, the stronghold of Ukrainian nationalism. The Ukrainian People's Republic was defeated by both the Ukrainian and Russian SSRs who united in the USSR in 1922. Pet went into exile and he ended up in Paris. In 1926, a Jew whose family Pet had murdered in Odessa, likely working for the Soviet GPU, GPU, assassinated him in the streets of Paris. Okay, now we're gonna talk about the big one, Stepan Bandera. Stepan Bandera was born in Galicia and did his studies where else? In Lvov. Lvov, that's a name that keeps popping up. That's a mecca of Ukrainianism. In 1929, age 20, Bandera joined the just founded organization of Ukrainian nationalists, the OUN. And he quickly climbed up the ladder to become its leader by 1933. The OUN ideology was similar to Italian fascism and German Nazism. It was integral nationalism. It held the nation as supreme based on biological characteristics. It romanticized violence and believed that a charismatic iron fist leader embodied the national will, such as Il Duce or Der Führer. Like Hitler, the OUN believed in the right of a chosen people to dominate others, copying the Nazi slogan, Deutschland über alles, that means Germany above all or above everybody. Bandera proclaimed the superiority of Ukrainian blood. Prior to Hitler's invasion of the USSR, 
Bandera negotiated with the Wehrmacht the formation of a fifth column battalions inside the USSR to prepare the terrain for the onslaught. One of them was the Nachtigall Battalion, remember that name. Shortly after the invasion, Bandera unleashed the Lvov anti-Jewish pogroms under the protection of the Wehrmacht. They were called the Petliura Days to avenge Simon Petliura's assassination by a Jew in Paris 15 years before. These pogroms by Bandera's OUN resulted in a murder of close to 10,000 Jews in June and July, 1941 in Lvov. With the arrival of German troops, Bandera proclaimed an independent fascist Ukrainian state under the leadership of Hitler. That did not fit into their Führer plans. Fascist, yes, but independent, no. So Bandera was put under house arrest and later transferred into a Hilton prison in Germany. There, he was kept in reserve for further use. In the meantime, Bandera's OUN supporters, they kept busy. They followed the Wehrmacht in its eastward progression. The Lvolf programs were just a prelude for things to come. In September 41, Kiev fell and the Holocaust began shortly after. 33,000 Jews were machine gunned in 48 hours outside of Kiev at Babi Yar. 1,200 men were in charge of rounding up the Jews, marching them up to the killing fields and machine gunning them. Out of these 1,200 men, 300 were Germans. The rest were Western Ukrainians, partisans of Bandera's OUN. The World War II Holocaust of the Jews was inaugurated in Ukraine and mostly by Ukrainians, followers of Bandera. In 1942, the OUN founded the Ukrainian Insurgent Army, UPA, whose main feat was to murder 100,000 Poles, mostly old men, women, and children in Galicia and Volhynia in such a barbarian, butchering fashion that even Wehrmacht officer found it disgusting. Bandera was released from his Hilton prison in 1944, as Hitler urgently needed his help in fighting the advancing Red Army. After the Third Reich defeat, Bandera was exfiltrated by British intelligence to Munich inside the American zone of occupation. It was a true return to his origins as Munich was the headquarters of the Nazi party. From there, Bandera continued to direct anti-Soviet operations inside Ukraine. He operated under the protection and support of the newly created CIA to whom he represented a highly valuable asset in the fight against the USSR. Finally, in October 59, the KGB caught up with Bandera in Munich and handed him a one-way ticket to go meet his Führer. Bandera is a hero of the current Ukro-Nazi regime. His statues and monuments are everywhere in Western Ukraine. Stamps have been issued in his honor. His birthday is a national holiday. 
The former president of Ukraine, Petro Poroshenko, has mounted a 50 caliber machine gun on the bed of his pickup truck, which is then baptized Bandera Mobile. Bandera's red over black flag is seen everywhere in Ukraine, and it flies over half the graves in military cemeteries. The song, Our Mother is Ukraine, Our Father Bandera, is almost like a national anthem. It is sung in a parliament and it's taught in kindergarten. Okay, now we go to the last one, the bad one, or well, they're all bad, Roman Shukevich. If Stepan Bandera was the Adolf Hitler of Ukrainianism, Roman Shukevich was its Heinrich Himmler. Himmler was the head of the SS, if you remember. Shukevich was born, you guessed it, in Lvov, of course. He did his studies at the Wolf Polytechnic, the very same university attended by Bandera. Shukevich joined the OUN in 1929, just like Bandera. He wasn't an ideologue like Bandera. He was a man of action, a field commander. He was well-versed in terrorist activities. Assassination was his thing. He assassinated a Polish chief of police and tried but failed to assassinate the Soviet consul in Lvov. With the help of German intelligence, Shukevich organized armed subversion against Czechoslovakia, preparing its takeover by the Third Reich in 1939. With such credentials, the Wehrmacht found him very useful and made Shukevich commander of its Nachtigall Battalion, a fifth column unit to serve as a special operation inside the USSR prior to the Barbarossa invasion of June 1941. They ran havoc inside the USSR at that time. They did all kinds of sabotage, blew up things, transmissions, bridges, power lines, you name it. Nachtigall wore standard German uniforms with blue-yellow ribbons on their shoulders. They were the first to enter Lvov and supervised the June and July 41 massacres of Jews by civilian followers of the OUN. In 42, Shukevich led Nachtigall in anti-partisan and anti-Jews operation in Belarus, killing thousands. He was promoted supreme commander of the insurgent Ukrainian army, the UPA, in August 1943 just on time for the Galicia and Volhynia massacres of 100,000 Poles. In February 1944, Shukevich's UPA scored a major symbolic victory. It ambushed and mortally wounded Red Army General Nikolai Vatutin, the hero of the Battle of Stalingrad and Kursk, the liberator of Kiev. Vatutin posthumously made hero of the USSR, holds a special place in the heart of the Russian and Donbass people. When Donetsk and Lugansk erupted in uprising against the Ukro-Nazi regime in 2014, it was under the slogan, they are Bandera, we are Vatutin. Unlike Bandera, Shukevich remained in Western Ukraine after the Third Reich defeat 
He kept fighting the Red Army and the NKVD in the hills and forests of Galicia until March 1950, when he was finally killed in combat at the age of 42. He was killed in Volt. Like Bandera, Shukevich is a hero of the current Ukro-Nazi regime, who renamed Kiev's Nikolai Vatutin Avenue into Roman Shukevich Avenue. Shukevich statues, coins, stamps, litter today's Ukraine. His busts hold a prominent place in the office of Ukraine's military commander-in-chief, Valery Zalushny. Lvov's larger stadium bears the names of Bandera and Shukevich. One of the most popular songs in Ukraine is Chervona Kalina, which served as the anthem of the UPA. Chervona Kalina won Eurovision 2016. Eurovision is a yearly song contest held in Europe in which 52 countries participate. Chervona Kalina was played in concert by Pink Floyd, minus Roger Waters, obviously, in April 2022 in support of the Zelensky regime. You could say that Chervona Kalina and uh, our father Bandera is the equivalent of America the Beautiful for Ukraine or um, God bless America, stuff like that, you know. All right, we'll stop for our first round of questions and comments. So we'll go with the first hand up. Comrade from Virginia, you have the floor. Again, it's important to note that, you know, this it, it, it doesn't even just go back to Ukrainian fascism, um, but it also just goes back to classic geopolitics. It has constantly been the goal of, you know, Western powers to split Ukraine away from the Russian geopolitical sphere of influence. Um, there's a quote by Lord Palmerston, who was the British prime minister and was also a and also tried to his best ability to get the United Kingdom and the British Empire to back the Confederacy during the Civil War. And the quote goes as follows. We will use Ukraine as the kindling of fire that will burn Russia to the ground. And this is back in the 19th century, comrades. So this is the 1800s. Um, and you'll notice that even more than America, um, Britain has been very, very aggressive. Britain and Poland especially have been very, very aggressive to almost an insane degree, where even Biden and the Biden regime has had to restrain both Britain and Poland from going even further in the current conflict in Ukraine. Yeah, so there's just a couple of things that I wanted to say. Um, I'm glad that we're doing this class, especially on Dan Bibieli, um, Victory Day. But just wanted to mention that one thing that always bothered me when we, when you actually study the OUN, when you actually study the history of Ukrainian nationalism, I mean, first of all, the the inception of the Ukrainian identity, if you look at it historically, came from the Austrian and the Hungarian when that. Western part of Ukraine was under the Austrian and Hungarian Polish control. It was created to draw um, the aristocracy or the bourgeoisie of Ukraine to become anti-Moscow. And so from its inception, the Ukrainian identity, now for whatever reason, the Soviets still supported this, but, um, and I'll mention that later, but still the inception of the Ukrainian identity was one that was inherently created to be anti-Russian and really anti-proletarian. Um, and then, you know, we talk about Stepan Bandera and Roman Shukshevich and the whole OUN. 
I really hate when we call them Nazi collaborators or Nazi supporters because, and this is why, you know, what I've been studying and the things that I've been trying to write and what I've been essentially trying to express in whatever I post about Ukraine or whatever is just to show that Ukrainian nationalism in and of itself is another extension of the Uh fascist or uh, national socialist um, type of fascism. It's, it's in and of itself. They're not just Nazi collaborators, the OUN and the legacy that it continues to leave behind in Ukraine is not just one that is sympathetic to Hitler. It is Nazi in and of itself. It is fascist ideology. Um, and damn, there was one thing I wanted to say. I'm sorry. Yes, I'll just, I'll stop there. Thank you. Well, if you remember what you want to say, just throw your hand up again and we can make sure to get back to you, comrade. Uh, comrade General Secretary Angelo, you have the floor. This is so good. We need to put this in a pamphlet. Put out by a mass organization. Not in the name of the party. This has to be, this information has to be getting out. If people see the name of the party, they're not going to even read it. But we got to get it out to masses of people. This is the problem that's going on now, that the American people don't know that this is fascism that's going on because they're not told us by their media. Let's be honest. And that's the problem. We had a an MPD pamphlet on fascism. Does everybody remember it? I don't know if it ever got any anywhere. I sent it out to some people. Um, we need to do that with this thing, and it should be under MPD. Thank you. So, yeah, thank you. Um, I just want to thank the last speaker before the general secretary for the work they've done on exposing the fascist nature of this Ukrainian nationalist movement. Um, and that helps me understand the historical basis of the anti-Russian nature of this movement. Many of you know, two days ago, I think the head of the Ukrainian intelligence service said that they're going to kill Russians anywhere they find them, anywhere on the world, around the world. And those kind of racist, uh, xenophobic statements have a real basis historically. So thank you for the class and allow us to learn more. Thank you. Thank you, comrade. Yeah, so interesting enough, I don't know how many of you guys saw this uh, all over the news. It was like every single news outlet, but the Ukraine, the pro uh, uh, Ukro Nazis have gone so far as to inside of Russia itself, just to name the severity of how bad this is getting, not in favor where the war is starting to get worse. Definitely not in favor for Russia or anybody who's proletarian. But there is an attempt made on Putin's life. Now, he was not in the Kremlin at that time, but that just goes to show you just how worse this is getting. Um, for anybody who's pro-Russia, Z, or pro-proletarian, taking an anti-Ukro-Nazi line. Um, and this... And also another thing that was just in the news prior to Victory Day is that there was international um, anger um, from Western countries primarily and pro-bourgeois Nazi countries that got all up in an uproar because the ambassador from the Chinese Communist Party went on to say that 
like it is. And he didn't mince words. Any state or nation that broke away after the collapse of the USSR are not really legitimate countries. They're not. And Ukraine's one of them. Of course, we all know that. And it's just funny how seconds. the reaction like that to, to that statement, which is true, came from countries that are supporting the Ukro Nazis. Thank you. So, which is really interesting. And this is a, a fellow Chinese communist, which is interesting to note. Thank you. All right. Thank you, comrade. Okay. I just wanted to touch on comrade general secretary, uh, secretary's point. You know, a lot of people since, you know, the Maidan coup have been putting this information out there and it is, you know, they're choosing to be ignorant to this. They're choosing to ignore this. Everything that we put out is viewed as Russian propaganda, the same way that in, you know, the seventies and eighties, it was viewed as communist propaganda so they are aware of this, you know, they even, you know, they send Ukrainians to Germany and all these other places. And in Germany, they had to put in the barracks posters that said, we do not allow Nazi symbolism, you know, Sig Heils, things like this, but they still fund them. They were past the point of them caring about this. They are actively supporting this. They're sending them, you know, hundreds of billions of dollars. They, you know, we're not changing anyone's mind because they've already made up the mind that Russia is the bigger enemy, you know, and this is a, this is a trap that a lot of left-wing groups have fallen into too. How can Russia be the greatest enemy when we have people who revere massacring civilians? How can we, how can Russia be the biggest enemy when we have people who are literally ideological descendants of those people in world war II who collaborated with the Nazis? You know, the same thing is happening in Estonia. The same thing is happening in Latvia and Lithuania. They believe that Russia is the bigger evil of everything. And they they reject that, you know, we're putting out the truth. They're willingly choosing to ignore the truth. So we there's not really much we can do on that front. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Thank you, comrades. We're going to hop into the next section of the class, which is going to be the reemergence of Ukrainian fascism. Uh, and I can read for this part. So following the counter-revolution and the USSR in 1991, Ukraine became independent once again, and nationalism began to fester once again. Uh, by 1995, the neo-Nazi Social National Party of Ukraine was formed, which later became Svoboda. The events of the 2004 Western-backed Orange Revolution further empowered Ukrainian fascists, and they grew more and more into the 2010s. Svoboda. In 2004, the year of the Orange Revolution, the Social National Party of Ukraine was renamed to the All-Ukrainian Union Freedom. Svoboda translates to freedom in Ukrainian. Though supposedly expelling neo-Nazi elements and distancing from fascism in 2004, the Ukro-Nazi nature of Svoboda would be continually shown. From 2009 to 2014, it was a member of the Ultranationalist Alliance of European National Movements. Its youth wing, C-14, was a neo-Nazi paramilitary organization. Svoboda was involved heavily in the Euromaidan protests and the fascist Revolution of Dignity and was popular enough to secure 10.45% of the vote in the 2012 elections. And just over on the side, this flag on top is the flag of the Social National Party of Ukraine, with the obvious Nazi symbolism to it, 
Then you have C14 and the Spoboda flag. Then down here, you have a picture from the Euromaidan where you can see plenty of Svoboda flags in the midst of it. And we're going to watch real quick a thing from BBC around the uh, 2014, around the time of the Euromaidan uh, revolution, where they actually show a torchlit rally by the right-wing Svoboda party. For Ukrainian nationalists, January 1st is one of the most important days in their calendar. It marks the birth of Stepan Bandera, the leader of the Ukrainian partisan forces during the Second World War. The rally was organized by the far-right Svoboda Party. Protesters marched amidst a river of torches and signs saying, Ukraine above all else. But for many in Ukraine and abroad, Bandera's legacy is controversial. His group, the Organization of Ukrainian Nationalists, sided with Nazi German forces before breaking with them later in the war. Western historians also say that his followers carried out massacres of Polish and Jewish civilians. But for many of his supporters, he is a symbol of Ukraine's struggle for independence. This year is the 105th anniversary of his birthday. Every year since 2006, Svoboda marches on the 1st of January in memory of him and to spread his ideas. The ideas are very simple, to leave it an independent country where Ukrainians will be the owners of their motherland. The Svoboda party itself is also highly controversial. It has played a major role in the country's pro-European, anti-government protests, now more than a month old. Ukraine is a deeply divided country, however, and many in its east and south consider the party to be extremist. Many observers say that rallies like today's torchlight march only add to this division. David Stern, BBC News, Kiev. All right, and then we have a section on the right sector. Another prominent Ukro-Nazi group is the right sector. Starting in November 2013, at the start of Euromaidan, this coalition of fascist Ukrainian forces included the Trident, the Ukrainian National Assembly, Ukrainian National Self-Defense, the UNA, UNSO, the Social National Assembly, its Patriot of Ukraine paramilitary wing, White Hammer, and the Sikh Battalion, which was the paramilitary wing of Svoboda. The right sector was heavily involved in the Euromaidan, the killings of trade unionists in Odessa, and the genocide in the Donbass. Despite right sector and Svoboda not achieving much in recent elections, they are heavily involved in the military activities of Ukraine. And just over on the side, we have the uh, symbol of the right sector, the flag of the right sector. Uh, we have, again, the social national symbol of Ukraine. This is what the Azov Battalion uses as well. I believe this one that has the H, C, O, and Y is from the Ukrainian National Assembly. Uh, then we have over here, this is the trident. I'm not sure what this symbol is, but I think that's white hammer. Yeah, because it has the hammer symbol. So I just wanted to show everybody and, and let them know what those symbols mean when they see it on different Ukrainians. And we're going to watch another thing by the BBC on the right sector. This is circa 2015. And the reason why I show this is because everybody tries to act like the Nazi problem in Ukraine is Russian propaganda from 2022. But if you go and even look at Western 
media back at the time of the Euromaidan, there was a lot of recognition of the fascism in Ukraine. So let's just watch this real quick. The protesters are back, but in place of ordinary citizens, now they're battle-hardened fighters. They're the same slogans as last year. Ukraine above all else. Glory, glory, glory. But in the mouths of the right sector, they take on a more sinister aspect. Well, there can be few more poignant depictions of how unfinished Ukraine's revolution is than this site. All of these people bearing the banners of the far-right group, these people who helped overthrow Ukraine's pro-Russian president a year and a half ago, and they've been telling me that they want to bring down this president as well. The banner of the right sector harks back to a Ukrainian nationalist movement from the 1940s. They say the colors represent the blood of Ukrainians spilt upon their country's black soil. Their critics call them fascists and neo-Nazis. We all love our country. Uh, if you, if uh, we love our country, we are neo-Nazis or not? I think not. On a summer afternoon in the park in Kiev, it's easy to forget all that's happened here in the past 18 months. The revolution, which is known here as Maidan, overthrew the government and then set this country hurtling towards war. Now they're flexing their muscles. In recent weeks, the right sector has been involved in firefights with Ukrainian security forces in the west of the country, hundreds of miles from the front line. These clashes in Mukachevo, on the border with the European Union, were about control of lucrative smuggling routes, but it was also a show of force, a signal from a strong militia to a weak government. Don't cross us. So I'll go ahead and take the first hand I seek. On uh, C-14, which is also uh, S-14, um, in English transliteration, so the, in 2018, the group was given a fund by the, by the state to uh, create a national patriotic education for the country. It was being funded through the, um, the sports uh, department, which is uh, interesting because, you know, as a lot of people know, you know, the um, European football or soccer, as we call it, is a breeding ground for a lot of fascist groups. So that's all I wanted to state. Thank you, comrade. Yeah. So in terms of, um, you know, talking to people about the Nazi problem in Ukraine, I feel like most people kind of like when you look back to the beginning of the start of when Russia entered the war, there was a lot of this propaganda going around that, oh, you know, that was just a problem in 2014. It's no longer a problem anymore. There's maybe like a couple thousand Nazis that are still around fighting, which is not true by any look at it. And um, I think that honestly, in the lead up to this war with the last six years or so where we were getting bombarded with Russia's interfering the elections, there's Russian misinformation, this and that. 
it kind of in a way was the lead up to when Russia entered the war because everybody was being bombarded with like anti-Russian propaganda for years to the point where the general consensus in the United States is Russia's the bad guy. So I don't know. I just wanted to say that. Thank you for that, comrade. Yeah, I don't know if it's just me, but if you kind of squint at that N with the little thing sign, it actually kind of looks like two SSs. And I don't know if that's just me putting patterns. I thought I'd point that out. Thank you. Thank you, comrade. Um, yes. So in relation to comrade question, that symbol is called the Wolf's Angel. And I forget exactly what brigade that was, but it was from one of the SS brigades. Another group that's been active that sometimes you don't see, I believe they have a red and white flag, is similar to the SS Galicia um, Wehrmacht unit, which was also one of those units that did some pretty horrible anti-Jewish pogroms. Um, but I also wanted to say that I did find a copy of the um, fascism pamphlet that was put out by MPD. And if you want me to send that to Comrade General Secretary, I can. Thank you. Yeah, Comrade, uh, I want to add that the division you mentioned with the Wolf Angel symbol, that is a Das Reich Waffen SS division. Okay, they're real famous in France for murdering a whole village of old men, women, and children in June 1944. Right after the landing of Normandy, they were on the way to the Eastern Front and uh, they murdered those people, okay? And uh, the Galicia, the symbol, is a yellow lion with three crowns in a blue background. That's Galicia which was the SS, Waffen-SS Galicia formed of uh, Ukrainian volunteers, all from Western Ukraine, from Wolf, you guessed it. All right, thank you, comrade. And that reminds me, I just wanted to bring up one of the videos we wanted to get in the class and weren't able to find right off, but it's been posted on the PCUSA Twitter before. Actually showcases a lot of different fascist and, and actual Nazi symbols uh, that have been used by the Ukrainians throughout the war. I mean, everybody's seen the iron crosses that are on tanks, uh, just like it's their equivalent to the Z or the V that's on the Russian tanks. But even swastika flags, like not just the actual uh, red with the white circle and then the black swastika on it of Nazi Germany. There's actually been ones that have the black cross that goes uh, across it. It has the blue and yellow in the background and the swastika flag. So it's literally a uh, Ukrainianized uh, version of the flag of Nazi Germany. And, you know, that's not that's not just a false flag thing from Russia. That's actually what Ukraine has on the battlefield. So I just wanted to point that out. I thought there was a really interesting contrast in the two videos that we watched. The second one seemed like they were already trying to uh, make you know, show their side, show the fascist side of it, like, as sympathetic. And I think part of the reason that people in the U.S. don't see Nazism or fascism in Ukraine, even if they read about Ukraine, the way our education system has 
taught us about the Holocaust and Nazis has totally failed a lot of us and made it really hard to see because of how it's distanced like the U.S. government and from their own fascist kind of tendencies. That's all. Thank you, comrade. I'll take two hands and then we'll have to get back to the uh, presentation for tonight. Yeah, I just sent you, it's something I'd shared previously, but just internally, some pictures of C-14. I sent it to you on Telegram. I don't know if you'll be able to screen share that or perhaps we can show it during the class part where we upload it on social media. There's this one, uh, it's a, an internet source. It just has a lot of pictures of, of, like, of the Nazism in Ukraine. And C-14 is in middle schools and high schools. Imagine like the JRO, the ROTC here. Uh, imagine that, but it's having your kids dress up in all black, like with the, the face mask over, holding banners with these runes, these Nordic runes, uh, and holding like AK-47s and, you know, knives and stuff. I wanted to read what the person said on these pictures, this group of pictures. It's a, and by the way, this is also related, this, these pictures, uh, it is C-14, but in addition, it's Kar Karpatska Sitch, which is actually another, um, it's another one of like the, the units, the military units, like Azov and stuff. It's called Karpatska Sitch. It's from the western parts of Ukraine. It says these are full Nazis and they're allowed to be in school. I just don't know how. Who let such people in schools and how? That's a good question. I think we know the answer. The United States. Thank you. The time is uh, 8.01 p.m. Thank you, comrade. Uh, yeah, I just want to speak on the small percentage of uh, official Nazis in Ukrainian armed forces. So Ukrainian armed forces at the beginning of the conflict had about 200,000 in their armed forces, right? And about 7.5% of that were official, even by West standards, neo-Nazis, right? Uh, now, if we look at this flatly, then, you know, the liberal-minded person or uh, this is an erroneous way of thinking, right? If you look at it flatly, you go, oh, there's no way that 7.5% of people could possibly uh, uh, have a considerable uh, influence over the state apparatus, right? This is incorrect, right? Only about 10% of Nazis were literally hands-on, culpable, directly related, directly responsible for the Holocaust. But all Nazis, right, that is the signifying attribute of Nazism is committing that atrocity. That is what we know Nazis as. Right. Only nine percent, only nine to ten percent of Nazis were directly responsible for this atrocity. We attribute to this ideology. Right. So it is not erroneous to say only seven point five percent of official Nazis have a significant uh, influence on the state apparatus, ideology, etc. Right. Uh, this is completely ignoring how they historically constituted the Ukrainian state. Right. How Azov was uh, directly at the vanguard, the forefront of establishing this Ukrainian state. This is the significance these That's Nazi right. battalions have. It doesn't matter the numbers. It matters the political significance they have within their state apparatus. All right. Thank you, comrade. Well, we'll go to the next uh, uh, presentation now. So this is fascist Ukraine 2014 to the present. And so we're going to get into a little bit of the, the Donbass, and we're actually going to read from somebody who is also from the Donbass region, Russell Texas Bentley. This is the Donbass Cowboy, the Prelude to War. 
I can start reading and then maybe uh, we can get some volunteers to read uh, in a a couple pages. So far from diffusing the situation, civil disorder continued into 2014. Escalating assaults by protesters against the Birkut, the Ukrainian riot police, forced the Rada to pass a new law on the 16th of January, restricting the right to publicly demonstrate. This raised tensions still further. With the eyes of the international media now firmly focused on the protest, Yanukovych was chastised by the very European governments he had initially negotiated an association agreement with. Led by one of the militant groups called Right Sector, the situation exploded, with stones, fireworks, and Molotov cocktails being thrown at, an unar- at the unarmed Berkut police, who vainly attempted to contain the rising violence. To pacify the rioters, Yanukovych offered senior political posts to his political opposition. In response, his own prime minister and cabinet resigned, followed by parliament annulling the new anti-protest laws and offering amnesty to previously arrested protesters under the condition that occupied government buildings were returned. Thus, the Ukrainian president's attempt to defuse the situation only weakened his position still further. At this point, violence spiraled out of control across central and western regions of Ukraine. In Kiev, the ultranationalist groups were now armed with clubs, knives, chains, and even firearms, pistols, assault rifles, and sniper rifles. Worse still, Indiscriminate use of Molotov cocktails, Maidan militants were threatening both Berkut officers and innocent bystanders. On the 18th of February, clashes resulted in the deaths of 11 protesters and seven police, with another 241 injured, including 79 Berkut and five journalists. Over the subsequent two days, another 88 people died, both protesters and police, most of whom were killed by sniper fire. In desperation, President Yanukovych settled a settlement with opposition parties on February 21st to end the crisis. Backed by the EU, he agreed to a constitutional reform limiting his presidential powers, early elections, a third amnesty for rioters, and to refrain further from violence. Despite signing the document, Yanukovych immediately fled Ukraine abandoning his country at a critical moment. His act precipitated a counter uprising by ethnic Russian supporters in the south and east of the country, viewing the violent Euromaidan riots as a coup d'etat against their legitimate and democratically elected president. Stunned outrage in these regions rapidly turned to fear when just two days later, the provisional interim government declared an intent to repeal the law protecting use of the Russian language. This, combined with ugly anti-Russian sentiments now being openly expressed by ultra-nationalists, was enough to push Crimea towards yet another independence referendum. Its third since the breakup of the Soviet Union in 91 and subsequent constitutional struggles under Ukrainian rule. Despite the tense situation, a political settlement was salvageable at this point. Anti-Russian sentiment was still largely contained within extreme 
ultra-nationalist groups now labeled as banderites for their uh, lionization of the infamous World War II Ukrainian Nazi. Pro-Russian separatism had majority, but not universal acceptance among locals who didn't want any trouble from the authorities. Few noted the visit CIA Director John Brennan made to Kiev in April 12th. Within 24 hours of his secret meeting with acting Prime Minister Arsen Lee Yatsenuk and subsequent cover departure, the Verkhovna Rada, that's a parliament, sent in the military to crush resistance, thereby crossing its own Rubicon. Two days later, the government followed up by declaring the start of the ATO, almost like NATO, anti-terrorist operation against pro-Russian separatists, thereby launching a civil war, which continues to this day. All right, thank you, comrade. And I uh, can take it from here. So the Maidan and Odessa clashes. In 2014, the parliament dismissed Yanukovych after protests that were triggered in the wake of his refusal to sign the EU-Ukraine trade pact and led to the February 21st agreement, later to be broken by the opposition, in which Maidan supporters in the parliament implemented a interim president, Oleksandr Turchnyov, against the constitution of Ukraine. Another important development was the passage of a law later reversed by the interim president of changing the status of the Russian language which triggered unrest leading to the clashes between trade unionists and rioters in the city of Odessa that resulted in the tragic deaths of 40 to 50 people in the trade union building. And just real quick, we're going to watch a clip from the eight years before documentary by the Revolution Report, one of our comrades, that goes over the Odessa trade union massacre. But right sector didn't only fight in Donbass. Aside from attacking journalists, judges, and anyone else who tried to actively oppose them, right sector's most horrific and infamous crime was its orchestration of the trade union building fire in Odessa on May 2nd, 2014. The mob mentality of several thousand football fans and pro-Maidan activists bust in throughout Ukraine was the fuel. The spark? Right sector agitators with a devious agenda. Together they marched on the Odessa Trade Union building, a last refuge to which the vastly outnumbered several hundred anti-Maidan activists camped outside fled to mount their final defense. Despite their efforts, pro-Maidan forces armed with improvised weapons and Molotov cocktails surrounded the building and up in flames it went. People jumped out of windows to escape the excruciating death that awaited them in the inferno. Those who tried to leave through the first floor exits were severely beaten by neo-Nazis and pro-Maidan cohorts outside. By the time the police intervened, between 40 and 50 people were killed in the massacre. All of them resisted the neo-fascist-backed Euromaidan government. The next thing will be a, another clip from the eight years before documentary going over the war in Donbass, which followed this. 
eight long years. Twenty-nine fruitless ceasefires. Thousands of innocent people killed. Countless broken promises and war crimes. How did it come to this? How did it happen that the same people who one day sang the same national anthem, went to the same schools, served to protect the same borders, found themselves embroiled in a ferocious civil war the next? War in the Donbass. War in the Donbass raged for eight years as the separatist Russian-speaking regions faced an onslaught by fascist Ukraine. The warfare took the form of trench warfare, building bunkers, using artillery, etc. There were several ceasefires brokered between the two forces through the Minsk agreements, but again and again, Ukrainian fascists attacked and the fighting resumed. It was not until 2022 that the Donetsk People's Republic and Lugansk People's Republic were recognized by Russia, and the Russian Federation came to their assistance with the special military operation to denazify Ukraine, which is still continuing to this day. And for the next section, uh, because we had already covered the Ukraine war in our two classes on the overview of the war uh, year on, what I wanted to do to end off this presentation was have a uh, clip from Ukraine and Everlasting Present by Global Tree Pictures it's almost one of the sequel documentaries to Ukraine on Fire by uh, Oliver Stone. But this was the most recent one that was actually put out uh, on the eve of the uh, special military operation, which includes a section on Zelensky. And I wanted to include that because a lot of people try to divorce Zelensky from Ukrainian fascism, uh, but that couldn't be further from the truth. So let me just go ahead and play this part. The protest vote. For the first time, the president of Ukraine is not a former prime minister, not an oligarch, not a politician. He's simply a comedian. <laughs> Volodymyr Zelensky, born on January 25th, 1978. Comedian, producer, and screenwriter. Supporter of Euromaidan. He supported punitive expeditions by the Ukrainian army and Nazi military formations in Donbass. Я розпускаю Верховну Раду 8-го скликання. Слава Україні! With his first actions, Zelensky managed to revive the public a little. To begin with, he took up foreign investment. Для того, щоб у вас був успішний економічний розвиток, річ перша вирішити національне питання. Тобто прийти до гармонії. Бо якщо у вас є політичні протистояння або, не дай Бог, конфлікти, будь ласка, не піднімайте питання про економіку. Будинок, який горить, не потребує інвестора. І тому, будь ласка, вирішити національне питання. Mr. Zelensky has successfully resolved the national issue in Ukraine. 
On July 1, 2021, he signed law on the indigenous peoples of Ukraine. It's almost a direct copy of the 1935 Reich citizen law of Hitler's Germany. According to the law, the second largest people of Ukraine, Russians, are not fully-fledged people. Zelensky also suggested that those who consider themselves Russian to leave Ukraine. Under President Zelensky, a question was directly posed to Ukrainian society. Is Ukraine a self-sufficient state? How would you assess the current relationship between the United States and Ukraine? Is it like an equality, a partnership, or something else? I mean, Ukraine became sort of a client state of the United States. It's like a protector of the all right, and with that, we'll have our last round of questions and comments. So I'll go with the comrades that haven't spoke yet. Uh, try to keep your comments to 90 seconds just so that we can uh, get through all these uh, comments before we have to wrap up, which will probably be around 930 Eastern. Thank you. Yeah, I just wanted to comment. It's really a wonderful, if it weren't so tragic, it would be comical how good of a depiction this is of the bourgeois media and how flimsy their narratives are. If you've only been watching CNN, if we have some standard liberal who's only been watching the news, all that they have seen is Ukraine under Trump, fascist, bad, corrupt. Everyone there is corrupt. Then under Biden, suddenly, no, it's all good now. Zelensky's president. So Everything changed. It's all it's all chill in the in the in the hill. You know what I mean? And it is so so easy to pick this apart. Even like you showed with the BBC coverage, this is a liberal media institution, state of the UK, putting out showing that this is a fascist state, going back as far as 2014. That's all. Thank you, comrade. And it, and it just goes to show the historical amnesia of a lot of liberals, where they go ahead and and think that. This is only something that's happened since February 24th, 2022. It's big, bad Russia against poor little Ukraine. And they only see things in terms of simple little explanations that, that don't match any kind of historical context of what actually happened in the Ukraine. But that's why we as communists need to stress that history as much as possible. Um, yeah, I had a question about the flag. Um, I noticed that in that last video, the black and red flag was vertically oriented, but I thought that it was a diagonal orientation the, with the red and black triangles, I guess. I was just wondering if someone can clarify what the difference is, because I've seen a lot of anarchists with that black and red diagonal flag. So, yeah, thanks. So, yeah, that that is the flag of the UPA. It's uh, horizontal and it's old. It dates back to the 1930s. It was the OUN and UPA flag, okay? So it meant to be the blood of the nationalists that spill on the soil and turn the soil black. 
you fertilize the soil, something like this. Okay, it's typical Nazi uh, mythology, and um, it's the land of Galicia and Volinia is infected. It's a poison land. So you know, in a way, that flag represents some truth. That land is poisoned. All of Western Ukraine is poisoned. That's all. Yeah, and just to add real quick on the flag, the red and black flag being used by anarchists sometimes. That is a thing that anarchists use. Sometimes it's anarcho-communists. Sometimes it's anarcho-syndicalists. Sometimes it's just straight up anarchists. But that's important to understand because anarchists were also involved in the Euromaidan coup. And a lot of anarchists that you'll talk to will try to defend the Euromaidan by going, oh, it was an anarchist thing that was co-opted by fascists. But I think it was cooperation between the both of them. And and even if that's not true, uh, you if it was an anarchist revolution, then it failed and the fascists succeeded. So just goes to show that that you just played into the hands of Nazis in Ukraine. I was struggling to uh, read the subtitles during the last excerpt, the video you played. It was an, an interview in which Zelensky had made an, an analogy to Puerto Rico. And I didn't catch that. I was wondering uh, if anybody did and what that that was. Puerto Rico, my Puerto Rico analogy always is along the lines of Taiwan. What what was he trying to say? What was that fool trying to say? This is Angelo. Uh, The analogy is like Puerto Rico was a semi-colony, always was, of the United States. That's all he was saying. And that's the relationship between Ukraine and the United States. It's basically a colony of the United States. That's what he was saying. That's all. Thank you. Thank you, comrade. Yeah, first, I just want to start off with a comment. Um, And really, it's just as far as like how much more worse things are getting in Ukraine and how just rampant Nazis are running rampant through there. And also here at home, what I'm seeing here in my part of town. And those of us who see it anywhere else, it's really a shame. We do not have a lot more people like Texas Russell Bentley that are that have that, excuse my French, have the pair enough to want to go over there and support, even if it means fighting on the battlefield. Really, really sad. And we need more people like Russell Bentley willing to do that. You know, it's passivism, I think, is just a really big, humongous problem right now and we don't need that secondly um you know it just you know there's it just feels like we need to do more than educate that's all because education really is getting us always so far and helping our russian counterparts out by education as many comments have stated we've reached the point where we've reached the amount of people who will, even will listen so we need education nice. but we need more Thank you. All right. Thank you, comrade. And I just want to read a uh, comment from the chat real quick. It was about 10 minutes ago. It says, about the assassination of the two famous Donbass commanders, Givi and Motorola, the Ukro-Nazi SBU carried out the assassination, not Russia. The Ukro-Nazi regime denied responsibility and blamed Russia. That narrative was pushed by all Western bourgeois media. So I just wanted to include that in there. Uh, we're only going to have time for about two or three more hands, uh, and then we're going to have to wrap up for tonight. Yeah, I I just wanted to say that uh, 
It's very common, at least in the U.S., I can't speak for other countries, but among the liberals, they believe that fascism can be simply voted out. They, they believe, oh, well, Petro Poroshenko might have been fascist, but since then they've had elections that they elected out fascism. But I want to remind people, communists never believe that you could just vote fascism out. It's like a weed. It just it entrenches its roots. It, you know, it removes all the past uh, democratic uh, department heads of a government, like the uh, education department, the military department, the intelligence, etc. And it replaces it with its own. So they they have this individualist view that if you change a president, that you're simply removing fascism, but Fascism is more than just one person. It's a whole state apparatus that can't be removed simply by elections. All right. All. Thank you for that, comrade. Excellent. Uh, thank you for taking me, by the way. I am going to respond to the comrade earlier who spoke. The comrade is from the area, grew up there. And as you've learned through this class, uh, we're involved with people who are there and people who are there on the front lines or even Don Quarter, who made that uh, documentary, members of our party uh, and associates of the party, like Barry Latucci or Comrade Tryon, they have different heritage. They might be Jewish or Romanian, but they are from Ukraine. Their family is from Ukraine. And uh, I wanted to comment on something. So just the other day on May 1st, the general secretary of the party in Greece, and this has been published on the World Anti-Imperialist Platform, it's not even, they did not post an opinion piece or anything. They just translated what he said and just wrote it as an article. And he said this, he said, the Russia's military operation is like NATO's attack on Yugoslavia in 1999. He says Zelensky did not invade Russia, but Putin broke into Ukraine. He said, yes, there's minorities fighting in Ukraine, but that does not mean Putin and Russia are justified in intervening. And then he closed it off to say this, the most ideal thing at the moment would be for the Russian people to overthrow Putin. So that's coming from the Communist Party of Greece, the leader of it, their envelope. That's what he's saying. 90 seconds. And uh, why are we doing this? I am not a Russian agent. We are not fighting for Russia. Number one, we're fighting against the fascism. Yes, but we stand with the Communist Party of Ukraine. We've worked with them. They worked with U.S. friends of the Soviet people. We want all of our new people to get involved with U.S. friends of the Soviet people. We commemorate the great October Socialist Revolution. They work with us. The Communist Party of Ukraine, the brothers who were detained, were on meetings just like this with us yes. last year. And the Communist Party of Ukraine was the third biggest party in Ukraine. Third biggest party, comrades. Now it's been wiped out. So that's why we're there. We're there with the Communist Party of Ukraine. Thank you. All right. Thank you, comrade. And I see the hands up, but I apologize. We're already a little bit over time, so we're going to have to wrap up for tonight. And the legal drive. Uh, so for comrades that are new, last year we were attacked and sabotaged by wreckers that tried to steal the PSMLS and destroy the PCUSA. Uh, and just for context, one of the reasons that they became wreckers was a disagreement over the issue of Ukraine. So that just to understand, you know, why they did this. They tried to steal the PSMLS and destroy the PCUSA, but they failed. But they still will be held accountable because there are things we've not got back, like videos, imagery, audio, etc which is why we still need donations to the legal drive because uh, we've been pursuing them legally, uh, trying to hold them accountable in the courts. And this is not something that is uh, cheap 
or easy to do. So we've got a lot of support so far, but we still need uh, more people to help out. And if you can give anything, one, two, three dollars, uh, if you can give more, that's great. Um, but it's not necessarily how much you give. It's how many people give to this that shows the amount of people that support our school. So if you appreciate the things that we do, you want us to keep bringing you uh, free collective online party sponsored education every Tuesday and Thursday. Please help us out with that. You can go to partyofcommunistusa.net slash donations, and please try to donate on Tuesday or Thursday so it's easier for us to sort through. That will go to the legal fund, and like I said, anything helps. Comrade General Secretary, is there anything that you'd like to say? I uh, know everybody said it. If you want to help with the lawyers, pay for lawyers, you go to something called Stripe, and you go onto Stripe, and you can use a credit card or a debit card to help us. Um, and we need the help for the lawyers. Otherwise, how are we going to do this? That's all I wanted to say. I want to thank everybody. Thank you for watching this full-length class from the People's School for Marxist-Leninist Studies. For more information or to join our free classes, visit our website, check out our YouTube, listen to our streams on Spotify, and chat with us on Reddit.